Hey, we've, um, we've been working our way through uh, the book of Romans. And when I say we've been working through it, what I mean by is we've started it. Um, we're going to be working through this book uh, really over the course of the entire year, um, piece by piece. And we recognize that the book of Romans, if you've ever kind of attempted to read it, uh, it's, it's pretty heavy going. This is, uh, this is not takeaway, right? This is a pretty heavy filling meal. And so there's a sense in which you can only tackle so much at a time. You can only absorb so much at a time. Um, and uh, and that, that's certainly true for this series. So there's going to be times throughout this year where we're going to do a few weeks in a row on Romans and then we're just going to be like, hey, take a breather, all right? We'll do something else and then we're going to return to it. And certainly today, uh, this particular passage and text is, is one that may be familiar to some. It's somewhat provocative. Uh, it's been uh, somewhat used uh, even within uh, the media and, and within kind of the worldly media at times, uh, not always in the best possible way. And we're going to unpack some of that uh, tonight as well. Um, but as we kind of uh, get into thinking about this particular text from Romans 1 through to chapter 2, I wonder if you're a little bit like me. I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm, that I'm a complete rebel in regard to life, but I have these little kind of rebel moments. Um, usually when there's kind of an instruction that like, you know, I kind of go, well, really? Would, is that really, really true? You know, like I'm the kind of guy, even though the pool noodle says do not use as a life-saving device, believe me, if someone is drowning, I will throw that pool noodle. You know, like, like it's, it's like a little mini rebel moment. Um, there's other times there's writing on things like our soda stream containers. If anyone's ever used these soda stream containers, they've got this bizarre writing on the bottom that says dispose of by 2019 or whatever date is on it. Like you're only allowed to use them for a certain period of time and then you have to get rid of them. And I'm like, no. I want to keep it, like, as in this is a perfectly fine product. And so whenever I, like, buzz my soda stream, I look at that little date, 2019, and I think, look at this. I've already got four more years out of it than they said that I was allowed to do, you know? And what's up with that only for individual sale thing, right? So when you like buy a pack of, of, of chocolates or whatever, it's like not for individual sale. Like who says? What if I wanted to sell one of these for a really good price? Who's going to jump on me? Anyway, if you've ever been part of school fairs or anything like that, you know we've all defied that from time to time. There's these little rebel moments where even though something is written there, right, we sometimes either neglect or we forget that it's written there, but basically we do the opposite of what it says. Interestingly enough, when it comes to this passage that we're going to be looking at tonight, it's a little bit like one of these moments. There is some things written in this text that are quite clear, and, uh, and yet at the same time, there is a risk with this particular text that we actually do the complete opposite of what Paul intended for this text. And this is going to become apparent as we work through it. It's one of these things that we kind of go, yeah, we think we know what to do with this. We think we know what we're allowed to do with this. But when we actually kind of dig in a little bit deeper, we kind of go, oh, actually, it's the other thing. And in fact, it's not just like an other thing. It's the other thing, the complete opposite of what we actually often use this text to do. So it's going to be fun tonight. It's going to be really good. So feel free to open your Bibles or you get your devices out if you want to kind of track with it. Um, we will be having plenty of text on the screen tonight, just FYI. It is a big passage, but we need to make sense of what is going on here. So first, a bit of the setup. Uh, this was covered uh, last week uh, as, as Megan uh, kind of worked through this, and in fact even David referred to it uh, the week before as well. But this kind of gives a bit of context for who it is this letter is being written to. Paul writes to the church in Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, sometimes translated, or faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So um, we last couple of weeks, we've shown a little bit of the Bible Project video, and it's given us some context to the group that is being written to here. Now, the church in Rome was made up of different kind of groups of believers, you had one group of believers who were the Jewish believers, the Jewish followers. Or they, they would become Christians, but they had, were rooted in this kind of Jewish history. They knew the story, they knew the text, and they'd been kicked out of Rome for a period of time, and they were just being allowed back in. You had another group of Christians who were the Gentiles, and these were the people who were allowed to stay in Rome. They didn't get kicked out, but they didn't know the text in the Old Testament the way that the Jewish believers did. But they had been holding this church while these Jewish believers had been expelled. And so suddenly you've got this mix, right, that has occurred that's created a whole lot of tension because suddenly the Gentile believers have been holding this Roman church for a number of years and, oh, oh, suddenly the Jewish believers are back. The Jewish Christians are back. Now who's in charge? Who is the most important people in the church now? And so there was this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, both who believed in Jesus in this church, but nevertheless had kind of a different sense of ownership of this particular church. Now, when we read here, we kind of see that in the text, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul's highlighting this. It's like, hey, hey, this this gospel, this is for both of you guys. This is for all you believers, all right? So, you know, let's not create division. In fact, he reiterates this, notice these words here, that is uh, by faith from first to last or faith to faith. Now, that would have deeply resonated with the Jewish Christian community, right? Faith to faith. We are part of this historical faith to faith passing on. That's us. That is us, right? Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And again, that reference from Habakkuk uh, 2 verse 4. If you want to dig into what's going on in Habakkuk, fascinating in that particular reference, but I'm not going to do it tonight, even though it's super exciting. But nevertheless, you've got this statement about the righteous. So at this particular point, you've got your Jewish believers and your Gentile believers, and they're going, right now, Paul is talking about us. We are the righteous. The righteous will live by faith, and that is us. Okay. Now, what's going to happen in this next part of the text is going to provide a lot of contrast with this identification. And what I want you to do tonight is if you are sitting here, I want you to identify for a moment as the righteous ones. Because actually in this parallel, that is who you would be. You are the believers. You are the righteous ones. You are the ones who are living by faith. We, of course, are probably mostly Gentiles. Um, But nevertheless, we are the righteous ones. Now, I want you to note that as the righteous ones, as the believers, as the ones from whom faith and faith has been passed on, note what goes on inside of you as I read this next section of Paul's letter. Okay? If you are the righteous ones, notice what goes on inside of you. Here we go. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, this is an interesting piece of text, right? Because if you're the righteous ones here, suddenly it feels like the table turns and Paul is talking about the other. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and the wickedness of people, right? And so part of you starts to kind of go, yeah, yeah, I see that. I see that out there. I see that wickedness. I see that godlessness of people. And you're right, Paul. They should know better, right? Because what may be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them. It's really fascinating as Christians, we take a text like this and suddenly when we identify as the righteous ones and we take a text like this, the other becomes the object of such judgment. And yet at the same time, you need to understand what Paul is actually saying here, particularly about this being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is not a new sermon, right? This is not a new truth that Paul was articulating. This was actually just the core part of how he went about engaging with the Gentiles. Now, uh, in Acts uh, chapter 16, um, sorry, Acts chapter 17, should I say, uh, this was Paul's, this argument, this, this kind of idea was Paul's primary means of reaching people who were non-believing Gentiles, all right? So people who were non-believing Gentiles, this was his missional approach. Notice what he does here in Acts chapter 17. This is Paul in Athens. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So when Paul, in his missional approach, appeals to non-believing Gentiles, right, he appeals to the evidence of creation. That is his go-to. He's like, hey, the God who made the world and everything in it and the Lord is the Lord of heaven and earth. And, And you know that life and you know that breath that you're experiencing, right? And he points them to God through creation. This is what Paul is referring to when it talks about that God has demonstrated his invisible qualities. Okay? So this is not a new idea from Paul that we read here in Romans about God's wrath and that they should know better. This is just part and parcel. This is what it looks like to engage non-believing Gentiles. He's done it before and he'll do it again. So let's continue. Note this. For although they knew God, this is back to Romans, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, again, this is not new. Note, I've done a little parallel there with our Acts 17 passage. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, right? This is what was going on, right? These were the images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Again, although they claimed to be wise. So this whole message here in the later part of Romans chapter 1 is parallels Paul's missional approach to non-Gentile believers. He's done it before and he's doing it again. The problem is that when we take this passage in Romans chapter 1 and we isolate it, right, and we treat it as some sort of standalone systematic theology about the human condition, total depravity. Now, 
that may have some validity. I'm not saying it doesn't. What I'm saying is that Paul here in his letter to the Romans is talking about something that the church is witnessing in real time. This isn't some big grand idea. He's saying, you're seeing this. You're seeing this around you. This is actually happening in real time. And so when uh, he appeals, again, uh, to these non-Gentile uh, believe, uh, sorry, sorry, the uh, non-believing Gentiles, he appeals to creation. He, he points out idolatry. When we take something that our creator declared to be good and over-identify with that goodness to the point of devotion, right? That's what idolatry is. It's like, it's not that the idol in itself is, is a bad thing. It's like you over-identify with something that God created as good and then you can't let it go. And also there's arrogance. They claimed to be wise. An idol is also when we try to get too firm a grip on something that cannot be gripped. When we try to put God into a box or a set of rules, right? We are also susceptible to these things. So suddenly you realize here in Romans chapter 1, when you parallel Paul's teachings, it quickly becomes evident that Paul is describing in this passage a very specific demographic of people, okay? So this wrath thing, he's describing a very specific demographic people that the church is seeing, and that is this group of people. Pagan Hellenism, right? Now that's kind of loaded there. Pagan simply meaning non-believing people, and Hellenism being the expression of culture that is found within kind of Greco-Roman life. And we're going to unpack this a little bit here. Now, a reminder. Was this letter directed to the pagans? Was the letter for the Roman church directed to the pagans? No, it wasn't directed to the pagans. They weren't reading it. This was for the Roman church, right? So if you are not one of the foolish pagans that they have been witnessing, you're one of the righteous ones, how does that make you feel? I'm feeling pretty good right now because I'm not one of them. I'm not participating in what they are doing, right? Those people who think that they are wise, right? you start to just get a little bit puffed up. And this is what I want to talk about tonight. Because I want you to imagine this balloon, right, is a bit like a righteous person reading these words and maybe, just maybe, looking out and saying, yeah, they're not living up to what they ought. Look at that idolatry. Look at that arrogance. Right? And by comparison, look how good we are, right? And this sense of self-righteousness starts to fill us up when we compare ourselves to the other. Notice what's going to happen to this as we continue through this passage, which is highlighting regular pagan Greco-Roman Hellenistic life. Therefore, God gave them, the pagan Hellenistic life, over to in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. All that sexual impurity. Exchanging truth about God for a lie. Oh, those guys. Right? Let's continue. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. 
In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I want to point out, this was normal pagan Hellenistic life here, okay? Idolatry was normal. That was normal, absolutely normal. Regular guild feasts within Greco-Roman culture were characterized by sexual promiscuity and gluttony, right? You you just read any history book about the first century Greco-Roman life. This is a picture of what was happening. In fact, even here, the sexual abuse of young boys by older men, right, as a form of initiation known as pedestry, right? It's a real thing. You can look it up if you really want to. It was a normal part of Greco-Roman life. I'm not going to go into detail because it's just disturbing, right? But this was normal. This is not some idea out there. This is what the church was witnessing pagan, Hellenistic people doing. This was not new information. Let's continue. Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, right? Us righteous ones, we would never do that. Look at these guys. I mean, again, this is contextual, depravity. I'm not trying to put this out there just to shock you, right, but there is... Uh, cultural festivals that the Romans would have. February 15 was one called Lupercalia, right? Where, um, where childless women, right, were beaten with skins of sacrificed animals, right, to try and make them fertile, right? Disturbing, deeply disturbing. You might even call it depraved, right? This is what was happening. Look at this. They are, uh, they are full of envy. I can keep mine. this. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. Crucifixion, gladiatorial battles, right? Executions. None of this is pleasant. This is not some sort of like, hey, here's a great list of sins to judge people by, right? This was what the church was actually witnessing around them in real time, okay? They disobey their parents. For some reason, that just feels like this, anti, like this anti-moment, doesn't it? Like, just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, and they disobey their parents. <laughs> they have no understanding. But, but by contrast, hey, but by cultural contrast, big deal, right? Between Jewish and pagan. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Again, none of this is new information, right? Paul is pointing out what they are witnessing. This was happening all around them. And all the while, as a listener, as one of the righteous ones, more self-righteousness, more pride was being added over and over again. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now later, Paul would highlight uh, this term conscience as the human awareness of this. But it didn't stop the pagans celebrating these things. 
didn't stop them practicing and celebrating evil. Didn't stop them taking something good, created, sacred even, and turning it into something shallow, destructive, or entertaining. I mean, we would never do that, would we? Married at first sight. Take something sacred, right, good, honoring, and turn it into some sort of destructive entertainment. How far have we come? Come on, right? Again, this is not new, right? And this is not some sort of list, detached list of sins on a clipboard to use as a reference point for the good guys and who are the bad guys, right? So you get this picture through Paul's writing, this chapter, of what they, the Hellenistic pagan Romans, are doing. And with each critical descriptor, what happens to us righteous witnesses? What happens to the Jewish believers? What happens to the Gentiles believers in Rome? Running out of hands. They're feeling pretty happy. Maybe a little superior. Maybe a little judgmental right now. Do we ever feel that? As Christians, when we look at the world and we look at how other people are behaving, maybe we make lists in our minds and our little sense of self-righteousness gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Maybe we use this list even to judge the world. We say, look, you're doing it. Good. Paul's got you right where he wants you in this moment. You, therefore, that's you, you righteous people, Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. In a split second... He takes what he has built, right, within these righteous people, looking at these people who are so depraved. And that self-righteousness that has been built up, he slams them. And here is a great example of why chapter breaks did not exist in the original text. Okay? Because we would love to think that chapter 1 is completely disconnected from chapter 2. It's not. Chapter breaks did not exist. Little subtitles that tell us what to read did not exist. And in this case, very, very unhelpful. Because his point is that you, supposedly righteous people, have no excuse to judge others because you do the same things. When we judge, it's actually us who is found guilty. There was no chapter break. This is not a new thought. This is directly connected to the preceding observations and the hearers get this self-righteous whiplash. I love it. Like they get this self-righteous whiplash. It's like your pride, your superiority, it's a fallacy. It is empty. Now why is this important? The reason this is important is because I can't count the number of times that previous text has been used and even weaponized by Christians to judge the world. Okay? And I'm serious about this, and this is a little provoking, right? 
Because so often we've seen Christians, all right, and love him or hate him, this was the same text that Israel Folau used, all right, that caused all that controversy, right? This text is used and weaponized by Christians to judge the world. And Paul's whole point is you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> this is his whole point. Do you not see the irony of this? Like this is what Christians do. We like take this text and we use it to, to judge others and embolden our self-righteousness and get right there. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul's like, you don't get to do that. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So so Paul's clear. He's not saying these pagan things are okay, right? He's not validating them. Paul isn't saying that. God isn't saying that. And who knows, there may be elements of the pagan list, for example, to be challenged by in and of our own faith. But Paul's argument isn't about adhering to a moral code. What he's saying is you don't get to judge. You don't get to judge them. Um, We don't get to judge. We don't get to feel superior. This isn't primarily a theological statement about the human condition, all right? but a challenge about how we might actually make ourselves to seem superior over another person. And yet Paul's point is, don't you dare. Don't you dare do that. (laughs) And we do this, right? We judge. We judge even locally. We judge people about how they use their money, about the way that they treat each other. We judge particular kind of relationships of people who aren't believers, right? And yet we don't even check how much air is in that balloon ourselves. Highlighting the guilt of others only serves to highlight our own. As Paul will later talk about, we all fall short. Remembering that these next words are squarely directed at the Jewish and Gentile believers. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. For when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. Continues. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Have we heard that before? But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. God does not show favoritism. Now, this phrase, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, right, this is so explicit. I'm talking to you, church in Rome, right? So Paul makes it clear, this is about you, right? So when he talks about every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and first for the Gentile, it's not like, it's not about them anymore, guys. We've popped the balloon. Now we've got to start focusing on what's going on inside of us. Again, the righteous will live by faith frames up this message. And yet what Paul sets up is this and challenges is this ranking favoritism system that we are tempted to play with. You know, maybe Jews on top, maybe Gentiles come next, pagans, depraved. And Paul's saying this ranking system that you're adopting, this superiority, this favoritism, 
that we are tempted to participate in, right, it will not justify you. It will, it will rather condemn you. Because that's what we do, right? We compare ourselves to other and then makes us feel good and then we feel like we are justified because I'm not as bad as this person. And Paul's saying, you got this all wrong. That system will not justify you. In fact, it condemns you. Now, if this has felt a bit theological, I want to just parallel this with exactly what Jesus is teaching in a very short parable that he shares in Luke 18. With all this in mind that we've just talked about, Paul's approach to mission to non-Gentile, uh, sorry, uh, to Gentile non-believers, with this raising up of the potential pride and the popping of that pride, and then the conviction that comes with such a statement, listen to this. Luke 18, Jesus taught, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, so the good guy and the bad guy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, that's the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all who exalt, all, sorry, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a beautiful parable that sums up Paul's lesson here very nicely. Notice these next words. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. We're talking Gentiles and Jews, right? This is the focus now. And we're going to talk about the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And another word for declared righteous is justified, right? Same word, justified. You see, righteousness, to be declared right, to be justified, is going to come from God. It's not going to come from us deeming ourselves superior to someone else because of their behavior or practices. Justification does not come from comparison and judgment. Paul says you don't get to do that because self-righteousness is a fallacy and a lie. And so he's saying to this church in Rome, if you are going to be the church that God is calling you to be, if you guys are going to actually get along, Jewish believer and Gentile believer alike, then self-righteousness is not going to have any place in this process. It's just not going to have a place. You don't get to do that. And next week, as we continue this text, right, he's going to continue this point. Because, again, there is another group that might try to place themselves above the God-fearing Gentiles. And that is where he continues with this. But I suppose I put this challenge out to us. Two challenges. One, this text, I encourage you to read it again. See what it does in you. See if it fills that balloon. 
or see if it fills you with compassion. Because only one of those has a place within the ministry and the work of the kingdom. And the second thing would just be that conviction and that challenge. Do I try to justify myself? Do I try to declare myself righteous or justify by looking at and condemning the world by this point of comparison? We all do at times, all right? Uh, and, and you can hear my words and be like, well, Gavin's judging me. He's got to go do a number on himself. I hear that too, right? But I'm pointing out just what Paul's pointing out. Let's not buy into that temptation to judge so that we feel superior. It's not the way of God. So I want us just to take a moment now, before we spend a little bit more time in worship, to test our own hearts. And ask that question, have I fallen into the trap of judgment? Have I weaponized this text so that I could feel superior? I want us all to be free of that. God wants us to be free of that. It's not good for us. He has our best in mind. So let's test our hearts just for a minute. God, if there is a spirit of superiority in us in any way, would you take a pin and blow that thing up in recognition that by whatever measure we choose to use, we always fall short. Justification is never going to come through our energies and our efforts and it's certainly not going to come because we stand or place ourselves over and above those whom we judge. And so, God, may we be tested for our arrogance. May we be tested for our idolatry. And may we come to you as the one who does justify when we humble ourselves, just as that tax collector did in that parable. He just recognized that he needs saving, that he didn't measure up. And he threw himself, as we ought to, at the foot of God. And allowed you to do that work in us so that we would see others differently. And so that we could be effective on mission people who need and needed saving too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.